Hello and welcome to the Toxpod. I'm Tim Scott and today I'm talking to Michelle Peace, Associate Professor at Virginia Commonwealth University and she has been involved in forensic toxicology in a lot of different ways over the course of her career. So we're going to have a chat today about the impact that she's had on forensic toxicology and the impact that forensic toxicology has had on her. Michelle Peace, thanks for joining me on the Toxpod. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's going to be a fun talk. So you'll be well known to many of our listeners and especially those in North America. But one of the things we really like to do on this podcast is talk to toxicologists who are working in lots of different contexts all around the world and give our listeners an idea of the great work that's being done in uh, a lot of different areas. And one of the areas where you've been doing some really exciting research is on e-cigs and vaping. So tell us a bit about some of the work that you've been doing with your group on that. Uh, right now, I'm, uh, I have two grants from the National Institute of Justice, uh, and it's really a continuation of work we've been doing since 2014. And one of the things that we discovered uh, really uh, early on in our research, and um, while we had seen a couple of mentions of this, that was uh, sort of like an afterthought or just a, and also in a couple of manuscripts, uh, and we overtly published on it was that a lot of e-liquids, for whatever reason, contain ethanol. And some of them contain uh, high concentrations of ethanol, uh, as much as 20% of the composition of the e-liquid in some of them uh, was ethanol. So that raises a lot of concerns for us um, that honestly we also think is being overlooked when we think about you know, the epidemic this past summer here in the United States with Evoli, the e-cigarette vaping associated lung injury. Uh, and so our concerns really were surrounding, you know, what happens uh, with roadside filled sobriety tests and just making sure to that we fully understand what the impact of vaping could be and, uh, and get that into the literature you know, particularly with um, the popularity of vaping. And so what we also began to see in some literature, and we were hearing some anecdotal sort of testimonials from addiction rehab facilities for alcohol, was that people who vaped uh, seemed to perform more poorly in their in their rehabilitation from alcohol addiction. And that sort of raised the flag for us that, you know, maybe once again, people are vaping a product that they uh, have no idea what is in it and that, you know, maybe there is some impact to ethanol. And there is uh, one manuscript in the literature that demonstrated that people who vape as much as 20% ethanol, I think the concentration in that manuscript is like 23% ethanol, um, that the metabolites of ethanol are going to be in the urine. So I think there are a lot of implications for that as well, uh, particularly uh, when we're talking about workplace drug testing or probation parole issues or any of a number of things in which people have to give a sample and be negative for substances, one of which would be ethanol. So we have a lot of concerns around that. So that's our current research. That's very interesting, I guess, in terms of, you know, it makes me think of 
in some places in Europe, for example, where if you lose your license, you have to have hair tested. And if you've got ethylglucuronide above a certain level over a long period of time, that can, um, that can impact that. So I wonder if the testing of hair would be useful at all in that research as well, because that's something that's definitely done in some places in the world. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I'll go and talk to, to some of my colleagues about that. We have debate. We have debated it. So we are collecting urine and oral fluid, you know, because the there's some concern about what the immediate impacts are in the short term. Uh, and so one of the things that we've discussed in terms of our own experimental design uh, is that because of the nature of what we're doing with our participants while they are in the clinic. And it's a, it's a rigorous study, right? We're putting them through, you know, standardized field sobriety tests. They're taking subjective tests themselves. And we're also taking samples from them on a really regular basis. And so the duration of the study design right now is fairly long. And so we got really concerned about are we actually going to be able to get those same participants back in, let's say, three months so that we could uh, collect the hair? Um, yeah, that's and, always a challenge, isn't it? Yeah, right. So, you know, so we're still debating that and uh, how do we have those conversations? What would those look like with the participants? Yeah, but it's, um, uh, you know, we think that there's uh, a lot to be concerned about with the vaping of the ethanol. You, you know, manufacturers put in the e-liquid for, you know, a number of reasons, not to mention the fact that also the flavoring agents oftentimes are dissolved in ethanol. So, uh, you know, so it's not unusual that there's trace amounts of ethanol in an e-liquid, but, you know, when you're getting as much as 15, 20%, 25% in some, you know, then that's disconcerting uh, in terms of what the long-term impact could be. Um, but we've discovered lots of other things along the way. We were really uh, tuned in to the issue that people didn't know what they were vaping um, almost immediately when we began monitoring e-liquid compositions as early as 2014 and had a lot of major concerns over what uh, was essentially being promulgated through by companies, manufacturers who were selling products to even what our uh, own federal agencies were saying about the safety of products with very little scientific research to back it up. So uh, my research team has been um, very supportive about essentially me on some kind of uh, campaign uh, to really educate communities as to what's in an e-liquid and what really is vaping and what some of the impacts of those could be. Yeah, this has been an industry that has just gone so fast from, you know, zero to just absolutely flooding the market with different vaping devices. And we're now on, uh, I don't know, what, fourth generation, fifth generation vaping devices now? Yeah, one of the things that, you know, we sort of monitor them and, and we feel pretty confident that there's five generations um, because we put devices that were developed to facilitate uh, vaping drugs other than nicotine in other forms like wax dabs and herbal material. Um, those devices require a very specific design in order to be successful. So we put those devices in their own category. 
Um, and so by our account, we think that we're in the fifth generation, but I think that, you know, when you look at how agencies are counting uh, the products, they might only say there's four generations because they don't count those other kinds of devices because they're not devices for nicotine, right? So I think that, uh, you know, one of the things that I have been also a proponent of is that when you follow the development of the e-cigarette, um, some of it seems to be really be driven by essentially also the ability to, to vape other substances and other forms. And so, uh, you know, not to, not to say that there's a lot of evidence around that, but we've been tracking it for so long and we've seen how devices get modified to do some, to vape something else. And then suddenly we have another generation. Right. Yeah. So the, I guess there's two sort of major issues here. One is what is in these vape liquids that people don't know about that they might be taking in, but then also what are people putting into these vape liquids intentionally in order to vape them? But obviously we don't, we don't know a lot yet about the, how the drugs uh, behave if they're vaped as opposed to the traditional routes, orally injected, etc. cetera. Yeah. Uh, we published a manuscript about a year ago. Um, one of the things that we discovered is that there was this mythology that was amongst the vaping world that if you increased the voltage on the device, that they would get more drug in the aerosol and then therefore it would, it would be a better high. And so uh, one of the things that we did early on was we changed the voltage and while we did see some moderate increase uh, in the amount of drug that was in the aerosol, we didn't think that it was practically significant, right? Because people have different, like literally different vaping behaviors. Mm -hmm. So we didn't think that was practically significant. So, you know, I'm rolling this around thinking, well, are people getting the more of the drug into their deep lung tissue um, so that led us down the path of particle size. And so we did this pretty big experiment where we changed voltages, we changed resistances, we changed the ratio of PG to VG and learned really that the particle size of the aerosol didn't really change with change in voltage uh, and change in resistance uh, of the devices. Um, and it did seem to uh, slightly hinge on the PGVG ratio. Uh, and this was the research to get to the point of the manuscript was a little bit of a learning curve for me, but for my uh, colleague, Justin Pokles, it was a little bit of an easier reach. And he had this experience early on in his career where he worked in, uh, in an aerosol research group. So he really helped us set up that experimental design uh, and then we also, in that same manuscript, evaluated, that was all with nicotine, um, and then we also evaluated methamphetamine. Uh, and so, you know, where it can be similar to smoking a drug, you know, we really demonstrated that the drugs are still getting into the deep lung tissue, and that potentially um, what people are experiencing in terms of it maybe being a better route of administration is that um, they might not get the same sort of burning sensation with vaping that they might get if they're smoking something. Uh, so we've thought a lot about that. We've also thought about 
you know, when people are vaping, there's less side stream, um, right? Because they are essentially uh, able to contain all of the aerosol in their oral cavity and then inhale it into the lungs. And so, you know, so we think that there are other things that are facilitating drugs getting into the system with vaping that aren't necessarily directly attached to what people think they're attached to. Right. And you mentioned people using new psychoactive substances in vape liquids, which is obviously a, a huge potential problem because we don't know a lot about the dose. What kind of dose are people getting when they're vaping these things? Some of them are very dangerous anyway, no matter how, how you take them. So what, what's your group's involvement in that? Are you, do you buy vape liquids and test them to see what's in them? Yeah, so we do have a, um, a, a pretty aggressive surveillance program. It's essentially, I just have undergrads searching the internet. Right. <laughs> um, and, and so we, we are in the, about essentially surveilling the programs online, whether that's Reddit or Blue Light or Drug Forum to see what people are saying about vaping and what they're putting in them. Uh, and so if somebody says that they are vaping a research chemical or, you know, they refer to it as spice or K2 or something like that, then we do chase that. Uh, but I'll be honest, uh, since we uh, published the first manuscript about the adulterated uh, CBD e-liquids, <laughs> we were flooded with people sending us products because wow. they were afraid of the reactions they were getting. So we do still monitor uh, the internet uh, and you never know what you're going to get. We've actually bought products that had nothing in them. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, why people feel like they're having an experience with those remains to be seen, but we've definitely found products with the, you know, NPSs that, uh, you know, are particularly dangerous. But really, after we published the case of the adulterated CBD, you know, we've received, I would easily say hundreds of emails and hits through social media and dozens of people have sent us products to evaluate. And some of these products are really people who were buying CBD products for therapeutic benefit, right? There's no intention to uh, consume something illicit for recreational experience. They literally want uh, to take a product that they think will help with their anxiety or back pain or, and then they have a really bad experience with it. You seem to have been involved a lot in your career in trying to influence policy and social education and things like that. It seems to be something that you're very passionate about. Uh, you grew up in a region that has suffered a lot from drug addiction, the effects of drug addiction. Has that influenced the direction of your own work and the things that you're passionate about? Yeah, it's, um, I'll be honest, really the, where I really started like losing sleep at night over gaps between science and policy was around the e-cigarette issue. Just not having enough scientists say something. And I thought, well, somebody has to say something. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'm armed with a lot of information. So then that was what really made me very sensitive to communities that were dealing with 
drug addiction and communities that that really where there really seemed to be some gaps in trying to get people to understand the science. And when I really began thinking about uh, drug addiction, generally speaking, um, and going in and having hard conversations in tiny communities um, that just seemed to be starving for some kind of information. You know, people, if you empower them, uh, you know, using, you know, language that they can understand, uh, then they can change their own courses of their own communities or families or their own life. And so when I started the conversations in small communities about electronic cigarettes and just realized that some of the questions that I was getting was really about not understanding other things about drug addiction. And then I thought, well, as a scientist, I can give people more information that these communities seem to be starving to get. You know, when you, when you step into a small community you know, that has five, seven, eight thousand people in it, the trickle down of information stops at some point. And then those communities are oftentimes left to to fill in the gaps themselves. And if they're left to fill in those gaps themselves, then oftentimes it's not with very scientifically robust information. And so, you know, figuring out how to have those conversations uh, I figured I had to figure that out pretty quickly. And, you know, uh, fortunately, I'm as a hearty Midwesterner, you know, it's <laughs> uh, I have some ability to be able to connect with people at a very earthy level. Um, you know, and some of that is because I, I come from a family that is from the Midwest and, you know, they don't have advanced educations. And so, um, and they are very smart and very curious people. And, you know, when you have conversations with them about things that I see at other levels, then, you know, they um, it's been good practice uh, for me to be able to to go into communities. So, um, you know, it's a it's an interesting crossroads that I've that I've come to in terms of, of uh, exploring you know, what do I do as a scientist in impacting policy? Well, you've actually had a very interesting career and done a lot of different things over your career. Um, yeah. And early on, I believe you considered going to law school, but ultimately you did decide to pursue a career in science. What was it that drew you to forensic science ultimately? I did. Um, so I was, uh, I went to a small liberal arts college in Ohio, Wittenberg University, and I was a chemistry major there and I love the language of chemistry, but I didn't, I was having a really hard time figuring out what to do with that. And, uh, you know, at the time in the late eighties and early nineties, we didn't have the benefit of all of these CSI shows that show, you know, some clever person in the lab. And so I wasn't sure what to do with that. And I was sitting on this, um, a hearing board, uh, where we literally heard cases from students. And I really, I liked that process. I liked that process of considering evidence. And uh, so I talked to my academic advisor about 
well, the, the only thing I understood if I liked that was maybe I should just go to law school because I, I like, I like this. I like this conversation. I like the presentation of evidence. Um, I like both sides having a say and, and debating that same evidence. And my academic advisor said, well, Michelle, you know, there are these things called crime labs. And it was a literally like an explosion in my head of, <laughs> I don't understand your words. <laughs> and uh, so I was a member of the chemistry club and I went to the president of the chemistry club and told him, Hey, I think we need to go to Columbus, Ohio. Cause there's this thing called crime lab up there. So, uh, so we went up to, uh, we went up to the crime lab and I, I, and no joke, it was like the heavens parted and the angels sang, you know, where wow. I really saw the real, a real practical, application to what I could do with with my chemistry degree uh so that's what changed my mind but then when you came out of uh, university you didn't immediately go into working in a crime lab right you're right um the tour was probably around in 1989 uh and so this was pre-dna and we didn't tour the toxicology section we toured fingerprints and serology <laughs> so right. I, I thought, oh my gosh, I need some biology under my belt. So I thought maybe I'll try to get the biology major in my time remaining and finish my chemistry degree. And that was all way too much. Um, I wound up just getting the bio minor, but I was, I got, I was really burned out by the time I got to the end of it all. And uh, so I thought, well, I'm going to take a gap year. And that gap year turned into about four years. <laughs> uh, and I, I had a couple of jobs on the in-between. And probably the, the most significant experience I had was at uh, Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I worked in their paper products division, um, essentially building a better diaper, <laughs> right. chemically. As a father of four, I can tell you, very important. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, and I got three patents uh, there. And so really the, um, I, even while I was at Procter and Gamble and, and, and honestly having, I had a great time there uh, and it really Procter and Gamble was the place that taught me to, to, to not be afraid. Cause I'll be honest, you know, I was the first person in my family to go to college and I wasn't sure what the college experience was. And, you know, even though I loved chemistry, I loved being at university. I was, I was still essentially af afraid of everything. It seemed mm -hmm. like so Procter and Gamble really taught me how to be brave, how to be brave with ideas and how to use chemistry as a tool and how to use instruments as a tool to, you know, to get some answers. So it was a fantastic experience for me just to learn how to be brave and to trust my instincts in the things that I had learned. Um, I still had this idea that I wanted to be a forensic scientist. I didn't know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know what discipline I wanted to be in. And, but at some point I realized it was time for me to go back and I left Procter and Gamble and moved to Washington DC to work on my master's in forensic science. And that was also some confusing time for the nation. And I wasn't re still really sure what I wanted to do. That was the time of the O.J. Simpson trial. It was right. when I went to work on my master's. 
And all of the talk and the rage and the conversation, of course, by then uh, in the mid-90s was about DNA and crime scene investigation. And so, you know, when I when I considered DNA, it still didn't really resonate very deeply with me. And uh, I had the great fortune of being accepted up at the medical examiner's office in Baltimore. And they let me rotate through the autopsy suite first because I thought, well, maybe really what I want to do is maybe death investigation or crime scene investigation. And the, the gentleman that ran the intern program, he's like, well, well, we'll rotate you through a few things. So I started in the autopsy suite. And for the first month or so, um, I was like, okay, maybe I can do this, right? I'm, I'm assisting in autopsies. It's a, what a great staff up there and in a, a teaching training environment. And then there were a handful of cases that came in that I really struggled with emotionally. And I had really, you know, Michelle talking to herself in her head. I don't know that I can be unbiased in all of the cases. And maybe it's time for me to explore something else. So I went to the intern coordinator and he said, well, why don't we go up to toxicology next? And when we toured up there and I walked in and and saw all of the instruments and the staff uh, was in the middle of doing their extractions for the day. And, you know, I went back and uh, that night and started reading about what is toxicology. And it was this blend of chemistry and biology. Not kidding you. Again, it was like the heavens parted and the angels sang. And I dug into a research project. I had no idea what I was doing. And uh, they stuck me on this uh, this one instrument and gave me some samples and said, have at it. And, uh, and that was really what, you know, a, another real bellwether moment for me that really solidified where I really believed was going to be the course of the rest of my career. Well, do you know what? I think that's very encouraging for a lot of people who are starting out on their careers now, because I think that's quite a common experience that people come out of university, don't necessarily know exactly what they want to do or how to get into the field that they want to get into. There's a lot of people who feel that nervousness and that fear that you were talking about. And I think looking at, you know, where you've come to now, a very, a very accomplished and very confident forensic toxicologist, I think that's very encouraging for a lot of people. Yeah, thank you. It's um, I, I do have a lot of concern for young people, you know, thinking that they've got to uh, they've got to jump right into the career that they're meant to be in. That's a lot of pressure, and uh, and it's and it's unrealistic, and and frankly doesn't really give uh, enough credence to the value of ex- exploring and being open to that and understanding those the value of those early formative years. Um, you know, because I you're sometimes you're kind of blind on your path. <laughs> Yeah. And a, hand, a handful of nudges definitely helped. Um, a handful of hard conversations definitely helped. And sometimes just taking certain leaps when you're particularly terrified also helped. <laughs> yeah. And you've been involved as well in a lot of other organizations outside your own university. You've been involved in Swig Talks and 
the Society of Forensic Toxicologists, you're a past president of that society. What, what have you gained from your interaction with other toxicologists in groups like these? You know, these organizations are just, they are so rich with talent. I am so humbled every time I have an opportunity to interact with my colleagues and my friends, whether that was through Swig Talks or whether that's through Soft. And so I really appreciate, you know, that these people that I have looked up to for my entire career uh, and, you know, in some regards have been these heroes of mine in terms of how they've cut their own paths and, you know, that they're so open in discussing issues in science with me. And sometimes, you know, I don't say this glibly, sometimes with little old me. Uh, and so, you know, I think the first thing is that their friendship and the openness of the forensic toxicology community worldwide is really part of what has um, emboldened me, uh, that has empowered me, that has said, you know, there there is work to be done and I can be a part of the solution. You know, I had a lot of concern really early on that the my career path as an academician and a forensic toxicologist, you know, would be something less, right? Because I so much admire the folks who work at the bench and advance forensic toxicology as practitioners. Uh, so I was so concerned about, well, I'm just an academician. Uh, and then what happened was that the forensic tox community not just continued to accept me, but continued to keep me at the table. Um, and again, that just emboldened me that, well, I, I can be a viable part of this community and I can also be a part of the solutions that we're searching for. Um, so the, the community of forensic toxicologists worldwide have really been a life force in some ways, a beacon in some ways, challengers in some ways, and uh, I just, you know, it's, it's those moments when you say, well, I am, I'm in the place where I'm supposed to be. And I am around the people that I'm supposed to be around uh, to do the thing that is most important to me. Yeah, that's great. And I fully agree the international forensic toxicology community is such a, a welcoming and, and tight-knit community in a lot of ways. It's, a, it's really a pleasure to be a part of this field. Yeah, it really is, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure like all the other disciplines, it's um, it's stressful and the issues you, you wrestle with on a daily basis are filled with pressure and to have a community you can turn to in all kinds of needs um, is, uh, is a real reassurance. And it's I think it's a strange transition to make for anybody, no matter what field they're working in, to go from being that person who is looking up to you know, the giants in the field that you see at conferences and things like that, to then go to being someone that others look up to, which I, I think you're in that position now. Um, and you have been an advocate, especially of women in science and in STEM. And I was interested to see that you recently spoke at the King Fahd Medical Research Center in Saudi Arabia on that topic. What, what was that like? What an amazing experience. So I got to have this experience because of a student of mine who I had essentially mentored and shepherded 
through his undergraduate work and his master's work, and then ultimately his PhD. And, you know, he returned to Saudi Arabia uh, to teach at the King Fahd Medical Research Center. And he uh, invited me over and he's very interested in having uh, other colleagues and collaborating with colleagues around the world because he wants to essentially build the first forensic science uh, research program um, in Saudi. And so he invited me over and they were having a, a conference. And so one of the lectures that he wanted me to give because of the nature of the way their uh, university is constructed, uh, you know, there's a female campus. And so the dean of that school actually thinks she's the vice president now. And uh, my student, Torky, my now friend, Torky, asked me to give a talk just to the women. Uh, and so it's, there are interesting times in Saudi Arabia right now, uh, you know, where they are really challenging some of their laws that govern what women can do. And they have this really interesting, you know, vision for their future. And at the core of that, so there's a, there's a very active campaign right now. And at the core of that uh, is essentially empowering women. And so in allowing women to not just work behind the scenes, but to own their information uh, and to be progressive about their thoughts. And so to be able to uh, speak to these women about what the history of women in science has been, you know, since the 1800s and how these women facing a lot of challenges and, and facing times in which their work and their ideas were essentially stolen uh, in that there are ways forward. So, you know, it was an extraordinary experience, you know, uh, for me to articulate that, you know, at one point I was also, you know, afraid. I was also behind the scenes doing, you know, the hard work and that, you know, that it took me time to figure out how to um, articulate my ideas confidently and that having good mentors helps with that. So the energy in the room was so exciting. The response was overwhelming. The women there uh, in their, their society, they understand that they are in this transition. And for somebody to come in as a cheerleader, you know, oftentimes scientists don't have a lot of cheerleading. <laughs> so for somebody to, uh, to come in and serve as a cheerleader for them, and, and kind of show them a path and encourage them, I think can be well received for anybody, but for a country and a culture that is in a transitional moment, it, you know, it was likely uh, even more powerful. So I just really appreciate the opportunity to have uh, been able to speak from the heart and, and hopefully empower um, a lot of young women in Saudi. That's great that you've been able to do that. It sounds like uh, you've really encouraged them. And I know you've had a, a big role in mentoring people throughout your career and your own students as well. What is some advice that you'd give to a young toxicologist who's just starting out in their career? A couple of things. The first piece is to identify the steps for your career. 
and to maybe articulate a pathway early. Um, it's not to say that you need to stay on that path, but articulating like where you want to be early on, you know, could be important because you identify things that you need to do for certain stages. And, you know, this is early on, it's about, you know, growing in knowledge, you know, advancing your skill set, becoming competent, taking advantage of things that advance you uh, in your skill set. And then the other thing that articulating a path, and and maybe that's just a five-year plan, um, is that when you articulate that, then you should find somebody that can hold you accountable to help you navigate probably some really difficult things or to help you find your own blind spots and and help you find other opportunities who can potentially champion you uh, and maybe find opportunities for you. And so I think those are probably the two things. Um, And I would say, you know, particularly when times are challenging to be careful of your own message and just understand that, you know, your attitude and influences other people's attitudes and, you know, finding positive paths forward is always more beneficial. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much, Michelle. And thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I I really appreciate your invitation. And uh, hopefully one day I'll be able to thank you in person again. Yes, look forward to it. Thanks, Michelle. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can contact us at thetoxpod at sa.gov.au. See you next time. Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.